This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello and welcome to the Paddock and the Pavilion. I hope you are all enjoying a relaxing weekend and I know today's episode will be one to savour. Today you are all in for a treat. Returning to the podcast, we have Richard Pittman, a broadcasting legend for nearly half a century. Whether you're relaxing in your favourite chair, walking the dog or doing jobs around the house, you are set for 50 minutes of racing insight and fun. Richard even had time to give us a horse to look out for. Enjoy today's podcast. Hello, Richard. Welcome back to the paddock and the pavilion. Yes, a lovely place to be during this time. Well, how are you keeping? Yeah, great. Really good. Haven't ridden for a little while because the ground's been too slippy and too hard, but that'll come very shortly. And you've had your jab and you've had another birthday. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I've had another Valentine's Day, even more important. Oh, did you get lots of cards? Oh, haven't finished opening them yet. (laughs) Well, on today's podcast, we're going to talk about your broadcasting career, which started in back in 1975. Were you sad to leave the weighing room on that last day at Stratford? Oh, yes. But but, you know, that was the last day of my job. I was on to a new job. I was excited for the new job. So, yes, that's the one thing you miss, not being able to go back in there. Only jockeys who are riding up to an hour. You can go in an hour before racing starts and then they clear clear the room. Uh, even trainers can't go into the, into the jockey's changing room. Uh, the valets, officials and jockeys. But it's a place where you've, you've broken bones with people. You've, you've helped each other. You've had controversies so you know for 15 years it's a big big change yeah so like all sports we all miss the camaraderie of the dressing room the weighing room um (laughs) but how did you get the job in the first place well i was very talkative when i was riding um and although it took me a long time to sort of get noticed and get riding winners in seven years i'd only, only ridden 22 winners that's pathetic 
in four years, none. So, uh, but once I got going, <laughs> they couldn't stop me talking. You know, if ever they were short on, it was ITV in those days, they'd grab me and we'd talk away for ages. So um, I'd been approached. David Coleman always claims that he had put me forward. Julian Wilson claims he, it was his decision. Probably was. Um, and they'd asked me two years before if I'd join them as paddock commentator because Jimmy Lindy was doing it but didn't want to do the winter. You know, he'd like to go shooting, go to Hong Kong, go do all sorts of things. So uh, I turned it down. I had the five best horses in the country to ride because I was riding Bueller at the time. I only rode him for one season. Um, so the job was there, but I wouldn't give up the horses for anything. And then two years later, when they offered me the job again, Things had changed. John Frankham, who was a boy below me, had come up and was a man now, uh, 10 years younger, patently better. And they offered it to me again. Would it come if I turned it down this time? No. Dead men's shoes. I mean, I held it for 35 years. Yeah. So when you started, um, did the jockeys accept you when you, when you started going into the paddock? It, yeah. Yeah. I, I was mates with everyone. Um, I can't think of one that the, there was no animosity you know you'd have your ups and downs with people over coming up the inner or giving me light or rubbing you against the rail and that sort of thing but but no no i got on well with them well i'm a personable person i like people um no animosity whatsoever that's a good way to start and did you get a lot of media training as well oh none absolutely nil <laughs> uh, but that was a long time ago you know 1975 long time ago Oh, no. In fact, my first day was not long after the last day of, of race riding. Uh, and, you know, you get your teeth kicked out. I, I've actually got a bridge, nice, well, nice bridge, yeah, bridge uh, across the gap. But at the time, I had dentures and awful, you know, to try and get your words specifically right on some of the horse names with your teeth wobbling around was a bit uh -huh. difficult. So, um, uh, yeah, I know I'm into it straight away. You know, the only thing you had to adjust to, and we had it in those days, Stephen, we had a lot of paddock time. You know, they'd come to you in the paddock 10 minutes or more before a race, you know, and you, we'd talk about every horse in, in detail. So the only thing you had to get used to is the producer talking to you in your ear while you are talking live um, and not stopping to think and listen to the producer you've got to keep going and several times in the early days you know a producer would say now look Richard I've got a shot and I'm going to bring it up in a minute but keep talking don't don't stop talking keep talking say what you want to say and when I'm ready I'll tell you and so they'd say ah look we've got a shot of someone at the parade ring it's Nubar Gulbenkin the Greek Mackie uh, shipping magnate you talk about it. what would i know about it <laughs> but you've got to keep talking haven't you you've got to keep talking and what was it like working with the experienced broadcasters like peter o'sullivan and julian wilson when you first started well quite interesting i mean julian highly educated slightly posh me stable lad not posh uh, and uh, you know so there were a few few notable differences but Julian would have employed me as he did Jimmy and, uh, and other people who would never be any danger to his position. You know, he'd get us for us, for our jobs, put us in little drawers and leave us there for the rest of our life, wouldn't let us out. Um, but uh, Peter was, a, I mean, such a hero to go and work alongside. 
And in fact, I've got a, a, a lovely race card of the one of the last days he, he commentated and all his colours filled in with his notes, which were fascinating. But on the other side of this cardboard thing were pl- pasted on two more smaller races, you know, eight runner field. And by the side of lots of horses down that part of the page were his bets. Bet like, oh, tremendous. He must certainly normal punters wouldn't get on the bets. He can get on now, I can assure you. But of course, yeah, I suppose if Peter Sullivan was having a bet to any bookmaker, it was a come on, come and join me, wasn't it? You know, he wasn't wasting his money. So, oh, anyway, the way he he, he invited me in and, and said, look, Richard, it's, it's pr- pretty easy. And I, you know, just talk to the camera when you're on camera as if it's your best friend, not a camera, which was good. But um, I also said, well, what about delivery, Peter? He said, um, well, Richard, uh, keep talking. That's all I can say, uh, even if it's rubbish, like when you're a jockey, but keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> and But some of your, your greatest days um, of working for the BBC must have been at the Grand National at Aintree, and you even rode there again. Again? At, what do you, uh, mean? Well, you went round the course again, didn't you? For the oh BBC. yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. After the racing, well, I was fit and I could ride, uh, and I'd got plenty of. I hadn't lost my nerve, which happens to a lot of jump jockeys. You know, when you get a certain age and you have breakages galore, you 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 don't fancy it anymore. But I loved it. Uh, oh yeah, some super things. Harvey Smith had already done one, the show jumper, along with Pat McCarran, who'd been the Grand National winner, and McCarran's horse refused at the third, a, a big ditch. And remember, we're following this with a, with a camera car and they're wired up for microphones and um, it refused. So Harvey Smith said, yeah, give it to me, lad. And he, he swapped horses and they went herring down to Beaches Brook and the horse that refused at the ditch actually fell, this time with a different jockey, with Brooks, uh, not Brooks, with Harvey Smith, who broke a collarbone. And so all the people say, oh, my God, that's the end of that. And Harvey said, oh, that'll be fine. He said, I'll, I'll get that scene to when I get back. He said, give me that horse. Got legged up and went on and completed it. So it had already been done when I started. But I had some great times. First of all, I went around with John Oatesy, just the two of us, and John Marvis, that fellow, you know. And, and we, we spoke well as we went. You know, we described things brilliantly. You know, go to beaches, this will be fine. Kick them in the belly. Get them right at the off, off takeoff. Yeah, I'll be fine. And over we went. Canal turn. Well, no other runners, Richard. Let's move out and cut the corner, you know. Let's bite the birch as we go around it. Fine. And uh, we, we finished. Uh, and the next year, it was decided I'd go around with Mark Phillips, the Queen's son-in-law. And he rode Columbus, a grey horse, who was a three-day eventer. Well, they loved the Aintree fences. And um, what I'd forgotten to tell you about OTR I'll come to now. I said to Mark Phillips, Mark, we, we won't jump the third. It's a big open ditch, you know, and they're two horses cold. Oh, they'll, they, they won't like it. Well, of course, what's up with you, jump jocks? What are you made? Are you wimps? So I told him the story that Oaksy wouldn't do it the year before. Uh, and we we pulled up going to the ditch, walked around, backed the horses up to it, kicked them in the belly. He said, they'll never know, you know, with good cutting in the room, cutting operating room, they'll, they'll never know. And they didn't. It, it looks as if we jumped it. But anyway, Mark Phillips was having none of this, and we kicked on and galloped down to the third. 
And only about 10 strides away, I realized the horse I was riding was Barony Fort, who had refused in the Grand National the year before. Oh, my God. And he tried to put the brakes on. You know, I looked like a, an agricultural turnip shredder or something. Anyway, he tried to slithered in and I fell off and I'm winded. And I'm lying there, my face in the earth, going, oh, you can't talk, you can't breathe. And Oaksy was covering it for the telegraph. And he came along and he turned me over with the toe of his shoe, as aristocracy would do, and said, oh, Pip you know, you're a year older, but you're no wiser. So it, was, it was great fun. But it, it, while I'm on this, and it's a, it, I'll make it short, I also went round with, I was the first person to go around with a jockey cam, a helmet cam, and they screwed it into the side of my helmet, six and a half pounds. Well, the obvious thing, Stephen, is six and a half pounds on your head, you're like that. Be, yeah. And the producer shouted, sit up straight. I said, can't, they sit up. Right, so anyway, get off. And they screwed some other weights on that side, so I'm now normal. But wouldn't you think, common sense, you'd screw the thing on the top of your head? You keep it straight then. <laughs> Anyway, I went round with Maureen Piggott, Maureen Haggis, now, daughter of Lester Piggott, but being married to William Haggis for years, and Ernie Fenwick, a great amateur rider, sadly no longer with us. Just the three of us going round and me behind, trying to get the shots, you see. That was fantastic. It was really brilliant. And I came bursting through them up that long run-in, doing a commentary, you know, and saying, well, I'm going to put it all right today. You know, I can see I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. And all this rubbish. But it worked well. It was a good half an hour program. So, yeah, lots of fun, those things. And you were working for the BBC. You were, you were at some very iconic sporting occasions, really. The 77 Grand National, Bob Champions 1981 tearjerker, the Void Race, and also the yeah. Bomb Scare. Yeah. What can you tell me yeah. about some of those events? Well, Champion is a good mate of mine, but still a hero. What he did was just amazing. Um, not only, uh, you know, for raising the money, and it's, he's about 15 million now or something like that, um, but to give the confidence and courage to other cancer sufferers was a marvellous thing. But also to get back from it himself and come and ride the Grand National winner, because it was pretty serious. Started off as testicular cancer, but then went to other parts of his body, and he, you know, it, and the treatment itself, it, he was taking a, a drug they were trying out, you know, it was worth the risk, and, and he said it was the drug that nearly killed him, rather than the cancer. And they're so great. But wouldn't it have been a fairy story anyway, if Bob's horse, Alderniti, had coughed in the morning and couldn't run, 54-year-old John Thorne wins it yeah. on a horse yeah. that he, he owned the mother and the stallion and bred it and owned it and trained it. Fantastic story. And I can still hear O'Sullivan's voice now because it was so iconic, wasn't it? You know, and coming up the running, it's all Eaty. He looks if like he's going to hang on, but there's a challenger coming. It's 54-year-old John Thorne on Sparta Missile. You know, those sort of things just stay in your mind, you know, forever. What about the um, the void race and the bomb scare? There, you weren't expecting those. No, not at all. Well, the void race. I, I used to do the lead up and the paddock, and and then as soon as they'd left the paddock, I'd hand over and Peter Sullivan would pick up and do the parade. And so I'd been through them all on the paddock, did a reasonable job, 
and unloosened my tie, loosened my tie then and, and sort of sat back ready for all the action to unfold. And um, void start, oh, bad luck, you know, and then second void start and uh, producer shouted in my ear, Pittman, get off your fat backside, only slightly sharper than that, and find out what's happening. Well, we, we used to be over right near the, the road into Liverpool itself and a little scaffolding thing with an office on top of it on, on scaffold planks. And I ran out, fell over because they were wet. And I always used to get winded because I'm a fat little fellow. Plonk, down I went. And we have floor managers. So the guy picked me up by his hand and he's whizzing through the crowds, knocking people all over the place with me like an aeroplane in his hand, you know. And he got me to the start, by which time the whole crowd were around Keith Brown, the then starter, you know, wanting the news. But we're the BBC, we pay the rights, we have, we have first call. And, and, and the floor manager knocked everyone out of the way and plonked me up on my feet and shoved me there. And I said, now, Keith, uh, you, you know, what can happen? He said, I can tell you exactly. Anything that's fallen on the first circuit or anything that has passed the circuit marker, i.e. jump the water jump, cannot run again, should we run? So good, clear guidance, you know, we were doing a good job, to which a fist came through the camera view and la didn't land, but it stopped only an inch from Keith Brown's chin, and it was John Upson who trained the favourite Zeta lad or son, favourite for the national, and he said, the next time I see you, it'll be in court. <laughs> all, all mayhem. Oh, it was terrible. So anyway, I backed out. I'd done my bit. I'd got the news. And I'm walking back across the course. Producer again, Pittman, Pittman, you're not finished yet. Find a steward. So they were all in a porter cabin, four ladders up, a, a scaffold, huge, high, looking straight down the course. And at the bottom was a, I don't know what sort of guard, you know, big, big beef eater and a feather in it and a sword. And, and um, I've got a cameraman, Sam, uh, Sam man and me. Bottom of the first ladder, he said, oh, you can't come here, son. You can't come here. Uh, stewards are up there. I said, yes, they've asked us to go up BBC for an interview. They want to tell people what's happening. Of course, they hadn't. So up the ladders, not easy with a camera on the chap's shoulder. Got to the top very high and i knocked on the porter cabin door and said to uh oh said hello or something can you answer the door out came patrick hibbert foy who was the senior stipendary steward little tiny chap yes Pimmon, one and one this is the stewards deliberating talking here it's a, a private i said i know patrick but we're live into hong kong the world is watching us we need to know and he said very superciliously, there are 70,000 people here and they need to know before any news gets out to anyone else. Goodbye and slam the door. I mean, it was so wrong. You know, it was wrong. They did after that realise that, that, you know, it's such a big event that you have to be media savvy. And now, of course, Stephen, you see it. There are cameras everywhere, aren't they? You know, mm, yeah. In stalls, on jockeys, here, there, everywhere. It's fantastic, the access that they have now. But that was so funny because it had never happened. We're playing by the seat of our pants. Um, and lots of people had tried. Uh, Roger Farrant had stood in front of the chair 
and put cones across it and put his arms out to stop the race. And they just thought that he was some demonstrator. So they rode over him and over the core, the, the, the cones. I think about nine completed that course. Mm. I'm sure. And John White, who won it on HMS, yeah. is, is a pal of mine. And I rang him only recently. I said, I will never believe you that you did not know. And, uh, and he, he won't admit to it. But we saw them talking to each other a lot on, as they went round, you know. Uh, and I'm sure they're saying, oh, should we, shouldn't we? Oh, to hell with it, let's do it, you know. And anyway, that's in the past, but so thrilling to be involved in those sort of things. And the bomb scare year, in fact, it was the first of about eight or nine times I went to the Grand National myself. But fortunately, my father didn't park in the middle of the course. I thought I'd get this in. But where, where did you spend the Saturday night of the bomb scare? Well, a good point, because we've all booked out. Most of us have booked out of our hotels because we've been there since the Wednesday. Couldn't wait to get home as soon as we packed up for the National. Away we went. Um, so no hotels. And, but I was on air as it happened, talking about the horses, you see. And all of a sudden, producer again says, Pim and Pim, and there's something happening. Uh, talk about it. They're, they're evacuating the Queen Mother stand, or is it the Princess Royal? Anyway, the Queen Mother, I think, isn't it? They so shots of them, everyone going and being put onto the course. Now, how would I know what it was? You know, no one knew. So I said, oh, well, they're evacuating the Queen Mother stand, and um, I'm sure it's only a fire extinguisher. Someone's being silly, something's gone off, you know. Uh, we'll be back in 20 minutes, I'm sure about that. Anyway, two and a half days later, <laughs> when we went back and uh, I'm I switched back to to off air so I could look around and say anyone know what's happening no so I carry on talking and two Liverpudlian police women came into my little domain my little hut on the scaffolding and I switched back off from being live and I said excuse me sorry but 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 we're on air and they came across and lifted it, me by the elbows and said, you're not now, <laughs> and took me out. <laughs> but the BBC were brilliant, Stephen. I mean, they, they went back like defending a battle station. You know, they went back to the car park, owners and trainers, Des Lynham held it as long as he could, and everyone else was moved out. They were done with a military precision. But the last person that we had that they couldn't reach or didn't think of reaching was Jim McGrath, Aussie Jim, who was down at the cana uh, canal between Canal Turn and Beaches, up a big scaffolding in his own little little box, chatting away there. And uh, I could hear in the background from the control truck saying, Jim, keep talking, keep talking. We're still here and we'll get other pictures and talk over them when you get them. And he spoke for 24 minutes, you know. He was absolutely brilliant. But then you asked, where did we go? Luckily, my wife, who, very smart, she um, went out and uh, went to a, one of the houses locally and said, look, my, my husband's going to be in right old state and we're going to have to be here for whenever it can come back on. Um, can you give us a room? And they said, no, no, sorry, we, we, we can't. Uh, but my husband's home shortly. He'll, he'll take you somewhere. Anyway, we went back to uh, where we were staying out near the M57. And luckily there was one single bed left in the hotel, <laughs> which we grabbed. But when we went back, you know, uh, it was odd. It was eerie, you know, but what a great thing to 
to put it on. Yeah, because it was run at five o'clock on the Monday. We, we'd gone home, so yeah. we didn't see it. So uh... Yeah. Oh, there's one silly story against myself. We, a lot of us could, could make good money on the Fridays up there, uh, golf courses or, you know, doing entertainment. But, you know, golf courses, like I'm not a golfer. They, you didn't get on until midnight because they were all drinking and telling jokes and smoking. And um, I, I, as part of my regime, I've been doing it for 30 odd years, had a blow up rubber female, you know, just for one silly joke, not rude, funny. And I shoved her in the boot, you see. So when we went back on the Monday, they let us in. There were only two cars in the car, the owners and trainers car park. One was a Range Rover. I think it was Adam Ogden, the son of uh, Sir Robert. And he'd got a Range Rover with a row of guns in the back <laughs> and live ammunition. He'd obviously been shooting that morning, I suppose. I don't know. And mine. And when I went up towards mine, the, the bomb squad people are nudging each other, you see, and laughing. Said, this yours? I said, yeah. And they sprung the boot, and there was this blow-up rubber female still inflated like that. <laughs> I mean... How embarrassing is that? A bit like Del Boy in Only Fools and Horses there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you also went back to the festival, obviously, every year until 1995, and you saw Dawn run win the Champion Hurdle Gold Cup and Desi's famous win. What do you remember Tremendous. about those days? Oh, etched in my mind. In fact, I've got a... I've got one of the few maquettes of Desert Orchid. It's, it's you know, meant to be quarter size, which I bought then as a Christmas present for my wife. I hope she appreciates it. And uh, I love him. I look at him every day. But, Stephen, I just really um, want to go back to, to, to Angel Tree because our Please last do, yeah. day was 2012. And I'd given a kidney away 10 weeks before the race. And I wanted to ride in the Legends race. I was 69. I've only got one eye. That eye doesn't work. Uh, again, being kicked in the face, both you know, two, two who's in the face. And um, I, wanted to, I wanted to do it. They'd run out of Legends, so there was room for me to, to join the Legends race. And it was the first race of the day, Grand National Day. You know, it was great. Mick Kinnan, 13 times champion jockey, you know. He was in it. Oh, and all the Grand National winning jockeys were there. It was superb. Um, the day when I got there to get ready, the chief medical officer said, look, I'm not going to let you ride. You've only got one eye. You've only just recovered from your kidney. And I'm also working for the Beeb. You know, 17 minutes after the finish of the race, I was to be in my position ready for my first interview. It was a pretty tight schedule. Anyway, um, I couldn't find any boots to fit me. Eventually, I stuffed my legs into someone's boots, but my, there was still three inches of flesh out the back, so we just round black tape around it, you see. So I'm, I'm taped up before I'm going out. And um, it, it was a marvellous race. And But before then, the stewards called us in and said, now, boys, look, you know, eyes of the world are on you, you know, don't go mad, play jockeys, you know, don't play soldiers, bloody, bloody, bloody. And by the way, there is a geriatric, one-eyed person riding in the race. If he's in trouble, give him some light. And they all led by Kinan said, oh, to hell with him. You know, he can look after himself. 
<laughs> there was no camaraderie then, I can show you. But I was also mic'd up. So to comment, commentator on the way round, and Jim McGrath would drop in every now and again if he thought it was pertinent. So right from the start, you know, I popped in a little bit behind them and, and I'm saying, oh, up front, you know, there's so-and-so going, well, and I'd like to be on that one and daddy, daddy, daddy. And I, I'm talking away all the way around. And then down the back straight, they suddenly realised that I'm talking away to myself. And no one knew I was mic'd up, you see. And uh, they must have thought I was totally mad. Anyway, it finished. It didn't do anything great. But I was 69, one eye one kidney only just recovered i thought was a one of the the, the most exciting things i'd done it was a bit of self-gratification wasn't it yeah but anyway things move on sorry you asked about children yeah yeah what, um, what it was like to go back to the festival in, in in a different role yeah to add to that i was born at cheltenham and only only Barely three quarters of a mile, not even that, I'd say, from the course. And used to play truant and go, go over the railway, which was live at the time, you know, sit at the top of the hill and munch my sandwiches and see the action. It was great. So Cheltenham means so much to me. It really does. And I was thrilled to be, to be part of it. I mean, especially as I'd been second in two Cheltenham Gold Cups, Soothsayer, an American horse, and Pendle. I won a lot of good races. Pendle won the Arkle. Um, Lanzarote won the Champion Hurdle. Saloning won something or other. Suse won the Cathcart. Uh, Kilini, great horse, had won the what used to be the RSA, you know, the, the Novices Gold Cup. Gold Cup this yeah. year, sponsored, funny enough, by a, a, a pal of mine, or two pals of mine, Americans, who I buy horses for. It'll be called the Brown Advisory, and they're an, an investment firm. But you know, like the Sweps and the Hennessy and everything else, <laughs> we old hacks go on calling it by the previous name from 30 years ago. <coughs> Excuse me. So yeah, to go back was great, but not to be allowed into the changing room. You know, I mean, John Frankham, brave as a lion, he'd go marching in there after he retired and nobody be bold enough to chuck him out but i got thrown out of there several, several times but it was so exciting i love it and also Stephen, of course my son mark was riding so that was an added bonus and to see him he was second on toby tobias in the gold cup behind cyril griffith's horse norton's coin and the owner wasn't happy at all i thought he gave the most perfect ride he was look he was a better jockey than me and the then he won the gold cup on garrison savannah and the bbc had upgraded their the accommodation by then and i had a little tomato house in the standings of the winner's enclosure julian had the main little tomato house to do his bit and my son mark won on garrison savannah beating french horse uh the fellow uh, i suppose yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he came into that hallowed winner's enclosure packed. They've done such a good thing because, I mean, so many thousands, tens of thousands can see it. And he came into that winner's enclosure and he looked up to my pod like that and he went, and I interpreted at the time, he was saying, yeah, I've done something you couldn't do. But he said, no, Dad, I was just saying, isn't this great? You know, the emotion is 
It's such a marvellous thing. Oh, and I remember uh, being live on air shortly before that, uh, another Cheltenham race, but not that particular one. And the great Edward Gillespie, who was there as the general manager for 37 years, was boldly trying to stop the hordes following the winner of whatever race it was into that hallowed area. And he got hold of one man and he was not going to let him pass. No, but 50, 60 others went round them while they were grappling. So it didn't really work. So all these little things, um, you can come back. And silly things you see when you're in, in your, aren't we privileged to be in our little pods, you know, when everyone else is elbowing each other. Um, I saw Philippa Kindersley coming across the paddock, down the left of the paddock, on a wavy sort of trajectory. And she was coming to me for uh, an interview about um, whatever cause she was on at the time. And uh, when she got to me, she said, all right, Philippa. She said, yes, I, I, I've just weighed myself. It was something to do with, she, oh, she, I suppose she wanted to look good anyway. Um, apparently she'd taken some Lasix, which jockeys used to take, and they're now banned, you see. <laughs> and so... I said, okay, okay, yeah, fine, 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 fine. So the producer says, three seconds to live, Richard. Dun, 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 dun. I said, I'm glad to be joined by Philip Kindersley, who I must say has taken a rather strange trajectory to uh, a footpath to get to me, but I'm sure she's well. She's doing this for charity. And I turned and I said, how are you, Philip? And she went, couldn't speak. She was so dehydrated from taking the pee pills, <laughs> So a marvellous girl, marvellous girl. So you've got to think on your feet in those situations. And I turned back to the camera and said, I'm sure Philip will be back with us in a few minutes. You know, gave some bit of news, you see. And turned back to her a few minutes later and said, ah, oh, Philip, you've rejoined us. That's good. What do you think of it? Boom, boom, boom. Couldn't speak again. <laughs> and she was distraught. Absolutely. Because she's the most marvellous uh, wife of the late Gay Kindersley, you know, marvellous person but i'm sure she wouldn't mind me telling you but you see these little things that you don't see if you're a race goer i mean just sorry one other thing on that score when dawn run won her gold cup and remember she'd won her champion hurdle great big mare john joe neal rode her controversially getting the ride from tony mullins who'd won the champion hurdle and there was a big contingent of, of fans and the place was packed, the winner's enclosure. And little Mrs. Charmin Hill, who owned the horse, Dawn Run, was in there. And I could just see the top of her hat. And uh, I thought this would be fun because there was a big pal of hers from Barbados, the whole crowd from Ireland. And sure enough, as John Joe got off and disappeared amongst the bodies and off he went, they got hold of Mrs. Hill, who was only about six stone seven, and kept throwing her high in the air. I mean, 10 feet in the air. And by which time we had moved on to get the results from Catterick or somewhere. <laughs> you know, they missed a great bit of television. But in these little pods, we could see everything was happening and were protected, you know, from the from the mayhem of the race. But Again, to see those great horses, I mean, oh, fantastic, wasn't it? I mean, Desi wasn't a Cheltenham horse, but he won his Gold Cup in ground he didn't like, heavy ground. Um, Simon Sherwood on, on board. And lots of good jocks have ridden him and 
I know um, uh, what a thrill it, it must have been. But so many good horses year after year. And what's going to happen this year? I mean, there are so many good horses. And how much did the job change over the years? Because 1997, we've got Julian and, and Peter O'Sullivan leaving and Claire coming in. How much did the job change? Dramatically, but it had to. Uh, not for P.O. Sullivan, but um, the, <laughs> here I'm telling tales out of school, but they had already contracted Jim McGrath to join the team for when Peter retired. So he was on contract. And um, head of sport came up to me, uh, <laughs> Jonathan Martin, and he said to me uh, one day, Richard, um, you get on well with Peter. Could you, you know, see, you know, when does he think he'll retire? So I trotted along. Peter, Peter, when do you think you'll retire? Oh, when I've done 50 years commentating. That was another 10 years. <laughs> I went back to Jonathan Martin. Oh, my God. So anyway. I mean, great to have Peter. Of course, he was the voice of racing, but they got this other plan. And um, Julian, who was so professional and, and really got racing, no one was interested, particularly at the BBC. And Jonathan Martin's quite a good race also, I don't know, but, uh, but it was a football era. And so Julian was given a position that very few television presenters have, he got his own office and he started doing contracts and and he decided everything. You know, he was he was king. Um, but it got boring, Stephen. You know, my he didn't he wouldn't move out of his own comfort zone of his own camera position, whereas now they're everywhere. I mean, Luke Harvey's jumping out of starting stalls. Matt Chapman jumps over the rails into the bookmakers. It, it, but, but Julian wouldn't move and they realised we had to move with the times. And so Claire did an interview at Newbury when she was a kid, just left college or hadn't, perhaps she was at college and was so good and they offered her a job and she turned it down. And I spoke to her afterwards. She said, look, Richard, I can see you're in your little box. So-and-so's there. I, I don't want to be in a little box you know I, 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 I want to flourish and turn the job down now that was very very bold for a young girl anyway she joined Radio 5 Live went everywhere did the Olympics then she had some muscle and they asked her back a few years later with a specific reason of altering the dimensions you know instead of Julian being very professional very good I mean Julian knew the job inside out, presented it, but things had changed. Not all our readers are the Telegraph, Times, Guardian. You know, a lot of people read the Mail and the Sun Express. So um, Claire was brought in really to break the mould. And Julian, a very educated man and a, a very knowledgeable man, when his next contract came up, uh, he could see that the winds of change were getting pretty strong and he didn't renew his contract, which was, it was inevitable that it was going to change. But Claire was brilliant, you know I mean? And you don't get to where Claire's got, or Peter O'Sullivan, by just doing as you're told and rolling over. If something didn't she agree with her, she, she'd, you know, make sure that a, a discussion was had. Um, and... I, I love Claire to bits, absolutely. What she's done has been marvellous, and she knew her sport inside out. And, 
you know, I was a boy, a bit player. That was all, you know, occasional interviewer, occasional presenter when people weren't well or when they wanted to go on holidays. So I knew my position and I had no great ambition to do anything other than I was. I just loved it, just enjoyed it. But to work with Claire, the meetings were very, very good um, under Claire as the main presenter. Whereas uh, we didn't often have them in Julian's time. <laughs> because he liked to rule, you see. And it mm. all changed because, and again, I shouldn't say these things, but I will, uh, because they're true. When I was presenting, I used to do it every three months when Julian went to Barbados and then South Africa in in the winter. And when nothing much was happening, like this January and bit of February, you know, a lot of weather mm. interruptions. So yeah. um, I'd be fairly cheeky. And a horse called Mr. Grumpy was was running and I'd say, oh, this horse was named after Julian. The owners liked Julian, Mr. Grumpy, that is a silly thing. And then when he got back, he wrote me a letter, CC, the head of sport. And it was after Timeform, who was sponsoring the first day of the season down at Chepstow, um, he launched things. And Julian said, wrote to me and said, I'm very disappointed in you, uh, Richard. You know, you mentioned Timeform at least 60 times. We were only meant to mention a sponsor twice, at least 60 times. I think it's disgraceful. And to think that you could be bought for the price of a black book, which was the black book came out every week, I suppose, I don't know. And I never used time for Skew used to use it a fair bit, and Piro Sullivan a lot. Um, they went back on the tapes to listen, you see. Um, they wanted to assert, I said it again, you see. And uh, apparently Peter said, and they're off for the Timeform Hurdle. It uh, commemorates the newest edition of the uh, Timeform Annual. It's uh, 500 pages long. It's got 300 uh, essays. Uh, pictures are absolutely amazing. And, of course, the producer is shouting in Peter's ear, Peter, they're off, they're off. And they're coming to the second hurdle. <laughs> <laughs> it was just one of those magic, magic moments. So I wrote back and said, look, this epitomises everything's wrong with the BBC. We never have any meetings. We turn up, we each do our own job and we go home. And I said, it's a weakness on your part, Julian, that you feel you had to write me a letter and not ring me up and say, Pittman, I think you mentioned time form. And I said, I never, never mentioned them. You know, it could have been so easily done. But that told you what... The, racing was like then so after that we had meetings the day of the race the morning of the race and before it to to get things going we, we had more input and that's what happened when claire joined and of course bbc kept losing uh race courses and uh, finished as you said in 2012 that must have been a, a sad day when you finished on the bbc yes it was it was inevitable, I suppose, because of money. You know, I mean, Sky coming up could buy things and other Channel 4. And, and then IV saw that it was a great opening. You know, the Grand National is such a huge thing. And we had great racing, Cheltenham, other things, you know. Um, it fitted in with their, their current racing. It was money in, in the end. And, you know, I think the number could be incorrect. But I think it's something like 54 miles of cables have to be put in up at Aintree to run the thing. Or some huge amount. And over 50 cameras. You know, it's a big, big, expensive operation. 
But we are, I say we are not in it, obviously. The BBC, the nation's broadcasters, you know, um, uh, and we couldn't have, couldn't afford it. So we lost it in one fell swoop. Having been 35 years in it, uh, it was quite a bit. Of, but, you know, I've been involved even, ever since one way or another, you know, either doing jobs for Entry on the Day and Entry TV and uh, with the Virtual Grand National. I mean, what a success that yeah, was. You've had a few more year. rides with the Virtual Grand National. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're still not winning. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. yeah, never winning. Chris keeps going further and further back. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so one way or another, I, I've been involved since 1967 when I rode Foynaven's year and fell at the third, which was awful because you just want the race to stop. You know, hang on, boys, I'm, I've fallen, let's start again. No, that's not the way it works. So for, since 67 to now, uh, and I'm involved with Nick Luck and ITV again doing the virtual race this year, um, providing we, we actually get it, which we hopefully will with punters, you know, it'll go out on the Friday night, um, whereas last year it was actually at national time. And, you know, it got a viewership of... Uh, 4.8 million people, which was huge. Watching the virtual, yeah. Can I just say on that, Stephen, sorry, I uh, keep butting in, but I'm, I'm old. No, it's gold um, stuff, this. So. D- during my time, the biggest audience we had was 16.9 million people. That's huge. Oh, tremendous. You know, the race does grab people. Now, looking forward to Cheltenham, uh, which is only, by the time this recording goes out, less than four weeks away. How do you think it will be like without any crowds this year? Uh, do we know that's the way it's going to be? I well, not getting... yet, no, but uh, no, I think, quiet, obviously. I think, but, uh, yeah, it'll be quiet. Yeah, yeah, it'll be quiet. I was there last year all four days, and in fact, the day before for lunch, but that's irrelevant. So it'll be very different for me. But the way the cameras work, and they put crowd noises on, you know, mm. so I suppose we don't. But it's building up to be so exciting. I mean, it's tremendous. Now, people keep asking for tips and what do you think? A month away, Stephen, how can we evaluate it? Because the ground is so important, absolutely rules. The next thing is health of stables. Look where we're at at this moment. Colin Tizard's had a terrible season. They've been wrong. Just coming back now. Had a winner last week, a good winner. Um, other trainers are the same. Harry Whittington, who only had three runners last, Cheltenham. First, second and third. Only just, again, one with a horse called Mrs Nash the other day, named after his aunt, grandmother, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so trainers coming back. Uh, the week before, that for me is the time we evaluate Who's healthy and who's not? I'm involved through Americans we buy for with Willie Mullins, which is very excited. Might have a couple of runners, but also Ben Pauling. We've got a couple there. One runs today, five o'clock. Anyway, that's irrelevant. It's called Gardino, lovely horse. Um, Ben had had a quiet time until recently. Now he's had 28 winners. It, It is the health of the stables, you know, that makes all the difference. Look at Mullins. He's fielding winner after winner. On that album photo, who has only had one run this season, why is it that back in your day, perhaps that's a long while ago now, but I was looking at like Pendle and the Dickler, the year that um, 
they clashed in the 73 Gold Cup. They both ran six times each that year. Yeah. Gold Cup runners now don't tend to run anywhere near as often. No. I think there's specific horses, though. It's horses for courses. I mean, the other one is best mate, of course. And look how look at the stick Henrietta Knight got for running him twice or three times for each Gold Cup. But it worked. She won three Gold Cups. Mm. Album photo, obviously, we don't know him. He might be a very finicky eater. He, he might take two months to, or a month, six weeks, a month to get over a race. Um, and as you know now, trainers don't run fat horses anymore needing a race. When do they need a race? Their facilities are so good. They, they don't need races. That's where Martin Pipe was brilliant. His horses were fit as rabbits, you know, when lots of people... You, you know, I was riding at the time, you know, you'd ride a lot of fat horses where the race would bring them on. So it's all changed. You don't get horses needing races anymore. The whole thing is geared up to go. Well, thank you again for those thoughts about Cheltenham and thank you for being on the paddock and the pavilion. You very kindly agreed to come on again where I'm going to ask uh, listeners to send in questions direct to me and then we'll have a programme where we'll go through those questions about the Grand National. Yeah, good idea. And I'm just looking actually at myself now, not a pretty face, never was. But you see the scar on my face there. Lots of people think it's a nice little dimple. That is where three teeth were pulled out. Look, that's where your teeth are. And they were pulled out there with tweezers, you know, pfft, horse's foot pushed the, the whole lot up, my, up through there. Now, when you're young... And you're having, you're having a dimple put in your face by a horse's foot. And also, you can see from my cheeks, they're odd. You know, the whole bush has been, the whole has altered my face continually. It was never any good. But anyway, we are what we are. Well, you're still here and you're still on good form today. And uh, thank you again for being with me. Right, Stephen. Thank you. And just give us a call and we'll be here. Good. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Pad and Pad. Sports Social Podcast Network. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.